The Ensemble Advice South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Hi, I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is the Ensemble Advice South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super-flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Ensemble Advice South Africa. Today, I have the privilege to have with me Ashley Kwame. Ashley, thank you so much for joining me today. It's wonderful to have you here in the studio. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're connecting over different time zones. Um, and the first thing that popped up was kind of kids and, and how, that, how that fits into our lives. But before we get around to kind of family and, and how that fits in, you are a trained family therapist, but also a financial therapist. How did those two worlds meet? Yeah, so initially I was trained in uh, marriage and family therapy and my specialty really in couples work specifically. So all of my postgraduate training and clinical practice being in couples work. Um, I'm married to a financial planner, and so um, we have interesting dinner table conversations around the overlap of our work. Our, I feel so badly for our children. Um, they will likely need therapy one day um, as a result. Um, but some of it also, you know, more specifically noticing um, and having an ear kind of trained for the financial difficulties that couples experience and um, the pursuit more formally um, around financial therapy, coming out of a desire to need better training myself and how to help my couples navigate these difficulties that arise within the relationship. Ashley, I think that's such a wonderful place for us to start. And the, the thing that comes to mind is, oh, you and your husband must have this figured out. You must have the best relationship. Your finances must be perfect. And anyone, any client looking in or anyone else looking in, uh, there's the perfect example. Um, I'm wondering what your response is to that and you know how often you hear that. Um, I do hear that quite often, and I know that this is just an audio, so people can't see my face, but usually I make some face of like, no, by, by no means do we have it all figured out. I will say that I am very proud of us and the work that we have done to get to where we are, both financially and relationally. Um, Clayton and I met in college, so at 19, and as most 19-year-olds go, you don't have it figured out. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of growth still needing to be done. Uh, and we were married at 22. So, 
you can also imagine how, you know, from a maturity standpoint and financially, oh, we didn't have it figured out. Um, I will say that we have committed to creating goals and a shared vision. And that commitment to creating couples goals and creating a vision really has led us to getting to the place that we are, at least now financially, where things feel a lot more comfortable. Like many couples, though, we have our fair share of arguments and um, tension points. Um, I like to think that I am always right. And um, <laughs> I know that's not what a couples therapist is supposed to say, um, but um, I do like to be right and enjoy being right. Um, thankfully, as I've matured, humility has become more of a friend um, to me. Um, and, you know, at least the same for Clayton. But, you know, we at least strive to have conversations, even if they are difficult, um, whether it be about finances or relationships and really that commitment uh, to each other in our relationship um, has gotten us this far, at least 15 years. <laughs> it feels like we need to have Clayton on this call to actually well, actually sure. get his part of the, of the <laughs> conversation. Tell me a little bit about your conversations with a couple, right? You mentioned now figuring out these joint goals and immediately I think, hey, that's, that's some of the work we do as financial planners. But how does that conversation go in a in a therapeutic manner compared to you know what a typical financial planner might have? If if you have had the privilege of sitting in on some of Clayton's meetings or if he's um, shared some of the work with you, yeah, he has. And you know, I do a lot of goal setting. You know, obviously we do that within therapy, um, and as you said, within financial planning meetings, the goal setting that we that I at least really do. Um, is incorporates a lot more emotion, at least than from what I've seen or heard, and not just from Clayton's work, but others. Um, and so we look at, you know, what things will feel like emotionally, um, not just on an individual level, but also relationally too. Um, in any marriage going about things, um, you know, solo, uh, you know, there's a lot of missed opportunity there, um, in my opinion, at least, uh, because one of the greatest joys of having a partner um, married or not, but just having a partner is that you don't have to do life um, by yourself, that there's someone else there to carry life's burdens with you, right? You're not in the trenches alone, if you will. And so, you know, certainly there's benefit to, you know, creating goals and they're being happy, but also during times of hardship, you know, talking about the impact of maybe not reaching goals um, can be, you know, just as important too. So the work at least, or the conversations I should say that I have with couples sound a little bit different, um, not maybe quite as heavy on the numbers focus side as maybe with financial planners. Um, you know, we don't work through the uh, six, I guess, stages of financial planning. Um, you know, they're a lot more centered just around the emotional connection um, or maybe currently disconnection, depending upon where they are um, at present. That's that's such an interesting thing to say in terms of leading the conversation. And what I found myself trying to do is to to find that balance between, you know, what is the emotional aspect? Because we're seeing that more and more, right? Our emotions driving our decisions and not the, hey, remove your emotions from the decision. I, I love how, how we have this expectation that we can just remove emotions. Like maybe we can talk a little bit about that fallacy around what happens when you're void of emotions? Is there even such a thing? Yeah, I don't think there is. Um, we're not robots. Well, you know, we are sentient beings, meaning that we are feeling beings. 
Um, and so <laughs> one of my, I kind of laugh because I, I do receive a lot of typically male partners um, who say like, oh, I don't have emotions. I don't do emotions. And, you know, I have to very gently and sometimes incorporating some humor, remind them that they are human. You're alive. You have them. They may be tucked away pretty deep down in there. Um, and, you know, for those clients, maybe in particular, who have a reluctancy to explore those emotions, typically there's some sort of valid reason why maybe there's an experience, a negative experience that they encountered um, in their past. And so part of the work, at least that I enjoy doing, is also uncovering maybe certain blockage points or stuck points uh, from an emotional standpoint, because, you know, uncovering and working through those really from an individual and relational standpoint will afford that client and couple just greater freedom uh, moving forward, uh, especially from a financial standpoint, uh, you know, as well. So we all do have emotions. I'm sorry to burst any bubbles out there um, who may be thinking that they've beat like some kind of emotion game, like I've beat the game. I'm immune to emotions. Right, right. Yeah. No, I don't think you would be alive if you didn't. And, you know, one of the frameworks I guess that I also offer is that emotions are necessary for survival. Um, you know, they help guide and lead us. And I find that so many people try to avoid them. And, you know, that can create a lot more tension and friction. And so, you know, creating at least maybe a relationship with our emotions to where we can lean into them a little bit more and try to befriend them and understand what they're telling us um, and where they're trying to lead us. Sometimes there can be some value um, there as well. I recently read an article where the author mentioned that we are relying on our emotions to actually take action. And I was wondering, financial planners listening to this, how could we potentially help our clients channel their emotions to actually lead to an outcome, assuming the outcome is in line with the objectives, without forcing it too much, but gently guiding someone? What are the other things that you would say, what are the skills maybe that's required from a financial planner to be able to do something like that? Yeah, I would validate anyone out there who is maybe feeling a bit uncomfortable right now and maybe just hearing you ask me that, not knowing maybe yet what my answer would be. Because I know for many advisors, that's pretty scary um, because, you know, they may be thinking, well, I'm not a therapist. So if I uncover some type of emotion, then what do I do with it? Like yeah. once it gets there, you know, I don't want to bring something up and then not have the skill set to be able to navigate that. So, and answering, can't just give the box of tissues and run away, which I've heard. Yeah. Don't do that. No, no, just let them. Let me know your... when you're finished. Yeah, right, right. Or cry with them. Yeah. That's okay too. Um, you know, but being a great emotion detector mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. starts with your own uh, comfortability with being able to tolerate emotions, and so kind of doing a gut check. Um, you know, if you feel like your client's starting to head down that path of becoming emotional or expressing some emotion, like, you know, opening up your palms um, from a practical standpoint here, right? Opening up your palms because um, it's hard to be really closed off if your palms and your body is, you know, open, but just opening up yourself and just saying, okay, I don't have to necessarily fix this um, right now. I can just let them be and experience their anxiety, um, their sadness, um, their worry, and I am not called to fix the emotion, um, going into fix-it mode is one of the biggest mistakes that advisors can make when clients are emotional 
I know that sounds maybe a bit incongruent with <laughs> how advisors might be thinking, but your job is not to fix their emotions um, there. Let them experience them um, as they are. You can, however, validate what they are experiencing um, using, you know, empathy, um, you know, validation, active listening. So from a skill set standpoint, just saying something, you know, as simple as, hey, it seems like you're really worried about this, or I hear that you're really worried about this right now, and your worry makes sense to me. Um, that can go a long way in regulating, you know, a client's system and settling them down, as opposed to maybe offering some sort of a quote fix it solution of, hey, you have enough, it's going to be okay, you don't need to worry. Um, that doesn't cue safety from a brain standpoint, and clients are more likely to react um, with bigger emotions, right? To really dig their feet in and, and kind of tell you all the reasons why they should be worrying, you know? Um, I've heard a lot of advisors uh, talk about that experience that the more they try to offer a fix-it solution, like the more emotional their clients get. And um, there's a reason just from a brain standpoint as to why that is. They need to feel some safety before they can, you know, calm down, Um emotionally you make such a great point i think specifically around that question around will i be okay i mean often the conversations would be i'm worried about this thing and will i be okay and and what i'm hearing you say is that the more we say yes you will be okay don't worry that's maybe not the most elegant way of the most helpful way because outside of the meeting that client might say well now i feel worse than before i i came in I want to ask you around over-identifying with what we would label, you know, like positive emotions. So maybe there's a sense of euphoria or or something's too good. And I've experienced that where I get excited alongside the client and we both kind of I almost over-identify with that emotion. And then, you know, that also leads to bad outcomes. How would you treat something like that? Because I think that's maybe less obvious than the the more typical intense emotions of, of sorrow or grief, maybe that we're dealing with. Yeah, I think that, you know, identifying with positive emotions feels good for us, right? It's something that we're really drawn to. And so, you know, there is, I guess, maybe part of me that's like, yeah, identify with it, right? Like if there's something to celebrate, maybe a milestone that's been reached or what have you, like it's okay to show that. Um, I think there's a level of discernment that has to come in and maybe knowing, you know, how far to go um, and when, you know, as the professional, um, as the practitioner in this, in this relationship, you know, when to also maybe kind of dial back. So I think, you know, practicing some discernment there can be really helpful. But, you know, to the degree that you're over identifying, it may also be helpful to scale back and kind of examine why you are over identifying. Like, what is it about this situation or this client that resonates with you so deeply that you are maybe, in fact, over, you know, reacting kind of in this moment, even if it is in a positive way? Um, just being able to understand that um, in a much deeper, more connected way really can help um, prevent maybe any unwarranted or negative outcomes, as you said. Actually, I'm wondering about the kind of relationship that a, a therapist or even financial therapist would have their, with their clients. Because in, in financial planning, often friends or family members would ask you number one financial questions, but also maybe for you to act in a role as a financial planner. Is that something that can happen 
in a therapeutic space? And, you know, should we learn from that as financial planners around setting boundaries with relationships? Yeah. So as mental health practitioners, and I'll speak at least here in the United States, um, I don't want to make the assumption that it is this way globally. Um, but, you know, we are taught to really be protective around having boundaries. So, for example, um, not seeing um, friends or family members, um, there would be a conflict of interest there um, because of having a dual relationship. I hear a lot in the financial advisory space that some of those roles are a bit different. Um, and, you know, I, I want to be cautious to like speak to that as, you know, I don't want to should on uh, advisors, but I do think that you know, really paying attention or exploring more the impact of working and engaging with close family or friends, just what that can have on the personal relationship side, um, especially if compensation is involved or exchange of compensation is involved um, in that. So, you know, boundaries is, you know, less about keeping people out and more about, you know, you um, as the practitioner, ensuring that the space that you are working in feels good and is healthy for you. Um, so if you have friends or family members where um, maybe you're working with them out of guilt um, or obligation, uh, because I hear that <laughs> a lot, really kind of asking yourself, is that the is that what's also best for me and then for them? Personally and professionally, I don't know how I would work with um, a close family member or friend, um, at least therapeutically, uh, and then, you know, see them at like the, you know, family gathering next month. Um, <laughs> that would be really uncomfortable for me. <laughs> um, but I also know that the nature of the work that I do is a little bit different um, sometimes than what advisors may be doing. Although, you know, yes and no, I guess um, advisors are dealing more with the numbers uh, you know, kind of side of things. And oftentimes client, clients share very deeply personal, um, you know, things about them. So I don't know. Um, I, I feel like I'm rambling a bit and trying to answer your question, but I'm also noticing that uh, like, I feel a little uncomfortable um, myself, like thinking about just dual relationships um, and, and working within that space too. So that could just be my own biases and part of my own training. Thank you for answering that in such a uh, a kind manner. And I think it's something that is, is complex and we don't often talk about. Sometimes there's an expectation, you know, our own or family or friends, just, hey, just help me with this thing. You're a financial planner. You can do this. But actually that relationship is so much deeper and there's so much contracting that needs to happen. And, and, the, and the boundaries that you mentioned, like that's something we don't often speak about. I want to delve a little bit more into creating boundaries specifically maybe if you're setting up your own business or starting out your own firm as a financial planner how do we start cultivating boundaries outside of our work life so that you know this doesn't consume us and it doesn't become a whole life I, I was just curious if you have some thoughts around that that is a journey um and to like I'm myself on that journey uh as well um, so I, you know, even though I'm 15 kind of years into like practice, it's still like a journey even for myself. So um, I offer that really just because I don't have it all figured out, even though I'm a therapist putting my own boundaries in place around work-life balance. But um, I do find that at least for myself, like when I stick to 
the ways in which that take care of me as a person, I do show up better for my clients um, and for my family as well. Um, What that looks like is not taking on, at least therapeutically, I don't take on um, quite as many clients now as what I used to. Um, And so I have more space um, there. I know that it is not in my best interest if I see more than four clients a day. Um, And so for me, client sessions are an hour long. So if four hours of my day um, or more or more than four hours of my day is spent seeing clients, um, you know, I I don't feel great. Uh, and so really sticking to that has been helpful in a way that allows me to do just better work um, with them. So my offering, I guess, around that would be is figuring out, um, you know, the time spent doing certain tasks or certain items. How does that feel for you? Um, you know, kind of before, during and after and taking really an honest inventory uh, and at least as best as you can trying to set up such a schedule that, um, you know, it really honors that and protects that. So my emotional bandwidth, that is really what clients are paying for. That in my knowledge, certainly. But, you know, clients are paying, you know, for that bandwidth that you have and that knowledge. And so, you know, paying in my, you know, paying attention, I guess, to like, you know, okay, how much bandwidth do I have to give? If it's not much, then, you know, clients will feel that from you, um, uh, you know, eventually at least. Do you think the same goes for financial planners? Should financial planners have sufficient emotional bandwidth? And, you know, like you said, your clients are paying for that and it feels right in a therapeutic sense, but is that same expectation there for financial planners or do you think it will be there in the future? I think it should be. But again, this is me shitting on <laughs> all of <laughs> This is fine. Yeah. This is the best place where you can do this. <laughs> oh, but yeah. We might I, both be wrong, but. <laughs> we might both be wrong. And I'm always open to being wrong and honoring different opinions. But uh, yeah, I kind of think so. Um, and some of that is because if I put myself in the role as a client and I come to you and I'm needing help figuring out this thing, this struggle that I'm having, you know, I want you to be able to think critically, thoughtfully and creatively um, around how I should be navigating this, not just from a number standpoint, um, but also emotionally, too. If you are so tapped out that when I come to you with a problem and you come across as dismissive because you're just tired, um, that's not going to feel great for me. And I'm really going to question then, you know, is this the type of advisor that I want to be with? Um, even if maybe it means me paying more for someone else's like services, um, I, again, personally would rather pay more knowing that when I am in a time of need, um, you know, this is somebody that I can depend on that will show up for me. And not only do they have great strategies, but they can also see me as a person and be there with me. There's kind of this ebb and flow that comes with emotional bandwidth. I was reading a recent article by the Financial Planning Standards Board, which governs the South Africa is one of their regions, similar to the CFP board in America. And one of the skills that they now require, and this is part of their curriculum, is for financial planners to be emotionally intelligent. And that was wow. the first time when I saw that and was like, wow, yes, absolutely. And it was right next to tech savvy, which you now also equally celebrated. Yeah. Yet, 
maybe emotional bandwidth or managing emotional bandwidth is a, mo- a b- little bit more nuanced around, yes, it's coupled with emotional intelligence because it, it can feel like this big thing. Yes, I need to talk to my client about the emotions, but where do I start? Right. Yeah. I think that the intel- emotional intelligence comes with knowing how much bandwidth you need. <laughs> right. Um, I talk to clients and advisors about coming off of autopilot you know, and being really intentional and looking at what you're doing. Yes, sometimes we need to be on autopilot, like with our day-to-day, like lives, certainly. But if we're constantly working in that, you know, space or that lane, you know, and we're not taking the time to really dive into, okay, who am I? What am I doing? Why do I think this? Why do I feel this? Why am I doing this? You know, I think from an emotional intelligence standpoint, it really lessens that degree there. Actually, I'm seeing more and more financial planners start asking about someone's mental health, not just to look at the quality of decision making, but sometimes some of the medication can impact our decisions. And I think as a financial planner, that's critical. Are you starting to see those type of conversations where financial planners are more interested in someone's mental health or at least the kind of interventions that are happening as part of their holistic financial planning? Yeah, I am. And some of it, you know, from a starting out place is how do I make referrals for maybe mental health therapy? Um, Mm. So advisors recognizing that I think something more is at play here or my client is, you know, very candidly sharing that they struggle with anxiety or depression or addiction. Um, But I don't know what to do with that. Um, you know, they are advisors are starting to want more information on how can I connect with mental health clinicians? Um, how do I even make a referral? Um, I created kind of at the beginning of the year this um, little guide on how to make a mental health referral. And while much of it is centered towards, um, you know, the U.S. based mental health system, there's some applicability, I think, globally, at least in understanding a general process. Um, but yeah, I do see more and more advisors having an interest, um, whether it's in making a referral or just understanding the underlying um, issues maybe that might be at play when it comes to a client's financial decision making. I want to echo how important it is having a network of people that you can refer to. In South Africa, we have this wonderful online solution called Therapy Now, which anyone can check out. And it's essentially a group of Uh, clinicians that someone can dial in, you know, virtually and have a consultation. And it's such a subtle way, instead of saying, you know, are you, are you speaking to someone? I think it's the way of delivering it in a, in a genuinely helpful manner to provide them with resources. And, you know, something that's popped up twice in, in my career is the thoughts around suicide. And that can be very daunting, specifically the first time I, I can remember I was, very shaken and unsure of what to do and how to handle this thing. And it kind of, it was this curveball that I didn't expect. How would, how would you guide financial planners to kind of tackle something like that or or try and try and provide some support when that comes up? I think that one of the biggest mistakes I see is or hear about is advisors just moving past it um, because they themselves are uncomfortable or don't know what to do. Um, and so I think if that is you, um, then I am giving you permission to say out loud to your clients, hey, 
I am hearing that you are struggling. I am at a loss for exactly what to do. I don't know exactly how to instruct you, you know, as far as what you need to do, but I'm here to help you figure it out. I think so often as practitioners, we are expected of our, we have this expectation of ourselves that we need to know everything and we need to know how to respond to things. But sometimes the most genuine response is saying, I don't know. Um, there's a very just, I don't know, human kind of element there and saying, I don't know. And it comes across as genuine and empathic. So it's okay, I guess, to respond with, I don't know exactly how to help you with this anxiety or I don't know how to help you with those suicidal thoughts, but I know that it's serious and I'm committed to helping you figure out, you know, or who to connect you with. Um, that's a beautiful way of, of responding. Um, that's genuine. That's honest. Um, beyond maybe that, um, you know, I like to coach uh, advisors on reflecting what they observe so if you have a client, maybe perhaps that's not overtly saying, I struggle with anxiety. Um, that's one of the more common ones that I see. So they're not overtly saying, I struggle with anxiety. But everything, like your spidey senses, I guess, are going off that like, I think this person's super anxious. You can reflect what you observe. And what that might sound like is something like, hey, I'm noticing right now that your leg is fidgeting really bad. You seem kind of antsy, kind of fidgety, and you seem to be talking like really quickly. And I don't know, there's just something about the way that you're saying it that speaks to me in a way that I'm wondering if maybe you're feeling a bit anxious. Um, so posing kind of what you're observing with more of a question, like I'm wondering instead of a direct statement of you look anxious. Um, it's going to go over a lot better. It leaves room open for interpretation um, and really just further conversation around that. If the client responds with, yes, like these meetings make me so anxious. Every time I come in, I have a hard time because I just feel so uncomfortable. I don't understand what's going on. Um, you know, I get really worried um, even outside of here. If they're like just vomiting, like all of the stuff after saying that, then, you know, being able to offer something in the form of resources, like, hey, I hear you. And that makes a lot of sense. I have other clients that struggle um, with that too. And here are some wonderful resources for you if you choose to follow up with um, them, you know, outside of our session that can really help with that anxiety. I think that's a wonderful way of communicating that you see them, um, that you're here to help them and that you care about them. I find that, and I don't know if this is your experience, but I find that sometimes advisors are worried about offending um, their client <laughs> and understandably so, like I, I definitely get it. I think it's more offensive to ignore what you see and maybe perhaps know or feel and not speak to it than to, you know, very humbly and gently, you know, put it out there to them. So almost like you are robbing that client of the opportunity to be comforted slightly in a way of just noting and normalizing and saying, hey, I'm here and we can figure this out together. 
Yes. It reminds me of that video that Brené Brown, Brené Brown created. It's that little cartoon um, around sympathy versus empathy. And if someone's uh, listening to this, please Google it. It is please, wonderful. I show it. I show it in my trainings. I'm so geeking out over here that you know this video. Yes. <laughs> so I mean, it's uh, it's this. I think it is. Was it an antelope that like just climbs down the little uh, little ladder and goes and sits? I call it a goat. So a I'm goat. Happy to oh yeah. Maybe it's that. <laughs> Let's I go with goat. <laughs> I say, don't be the goat, be the bear. <laughs> be the bear. And it's, it's just that thing, you know, we don't have to fix. The first time I went for therapy, which was using therapy now, was a great experience because I thought if we're going to tell our clients that, hey, this is something valuable, let's lead by example. And the therapist asked me, are you a fixer or are you comfortable sitting in a space where you can't fix? And that made me think that, Hey, we often, sometimes we can fix, right? We can put on our technical hats and we can go and, and fix the financial plan. But the other 80% life creates these opportunities where we don't necessarily, we are not necessarily the ones that should be fixing. But if we empower our clients and get them to fix, hey, isn't that a much better outcome for them? Yeah, I I think the tricky part here for advisors is that you know, I go back to discernment. There is a level of your job that is fixing, right? Um, and so knowing that line of where where's the fixing versus not fixing, it's tricky. Uh, so, I, you know, I validate the complexity of that. One of the things that I encourage advisors to think about or, or that I'll say is that sometimes when we are fixing, quote, fixing um, or have that um, pull to fix, we in fact make it about us instead of making it about the client. So I think that, you know, our intention is to make the client feel better or to make that situation better. And so we impulsively jump in with, in our mind, some kind of brilliant solution or strategy. But instead, in that moment, what we're actually doing is we're making the situation about ourselves because we're uncomfortable with their distress. We're uncomfortable with whatever it is that they're talking about or experiencing. And so our jumping in to fix it is really a way of easing our own discomfort, not our clients. And so I think it can be valuable to ask yourself sometimes, you know, I'm feeling this tug and pull to fix it. Is this so that I will feel better or is it really to make my client feel better. And that requires some honesty, <laughs> you know, too. But I think being able to answer that or ask that question of yourself can be a helpful guide in knowing, is this a situation that I need to just listen actively and provide empathy and validation? Or do I need to provide some kind of strategy uh, for them? We're back to increasing your emotional bandwidth. And I might add, you could just ask, you could just say, what do you need from me? Or how Absolutely. can I help you here? It takes yeah. away all of that pressure from having to figure out <laughs> the best solution. Um, approach it with some curiosity. I always find that helps. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I want to know a little bit more about the emotional bandwidth and how that has changed over your over the last 15 years as life changes, right? You've had two kids. Does it come and go or is this something that you can grow over time? What are the things that we can do? Because I really think that we maybe have a crisis of emotional bandwidth that is really not. <laughs> it's probably a single lane as opposed to a highway. What are the things during our lives that we should be looking out for that might be signals that 
hey, this is a time when my emotional bandwidth is probably going to be a little bit more narrow and I need to be cognizant of that. I think if you are looking at any type of life transition, um, even if it's maybe smaller, um, so kids even starting back to school. So currently in the U.S., um, at least here uh, in Georgia, our kids are on summer break right now. And so schedules are a bit more relaxed. Um, I find that I have more bandwidth in the summer. Um, You know, maybe that's just a lot more vitamin D and sunshine uh, as well. But the start of the school season, I know, gets to be a little bit more stressful or around the holidays. These are maybe not large kind of transition points, but more regular um, occurring ones that sometimes can have impact on our bandwidth. So knowing I should not be seeing a lot of clients maybe around, you know, the holidays or the end of the year, maybe you can't help that. Um, And if you can't, then finding ways to take care of yourself outside of that. Uh, But being able to anticipate what lies ahead can be helpful from just a practical scheduling standpoint. Um, sometimes we can't anticipate that and we find ourselves just kind of in the muck and it's like, like we're here. Um, one of the biggest indicators, and this is something that I have found in my own work um, too, is that if I see a client on the schedule and I get that, oh, gosh, I'm just not looking forward to that meeting. Um, or if I have the thoughts of like, you know, I wish all of my clients would cancel today. Um, that's a red flag that I don't have a lot of bandwidth (laughs) and I need to be doing some other things to really take care of myself so that I can show up in a way that's professional, um, but is also congruent with how and what I value. This almost sounds like a little bit of stress management. And I want to I want to share with you, uh, uh, you are probably familiar with this, but for the sake of the listeners, there's a scale of stressful life events, the Holmes Rahe scale, which I often like looking at because the one right at the top, the most stressful life event is the death of a spouse. And this is according to their, yeah. um, their list. And obviously, each person experiences things dif- differently. But what I found interesting is that there's a couple in here that we might not think about. And, you know, towards the bottom is things like change in eating habits, change in sleeping habits, change in church activities. Um, change in residence, minor traffic violations, trouble with the in-laws. <laughs> if my in-laws are listening, <laughs> that's, um, yeah, there's, there's so many things that we don't typically label as stressful life events, but especially when they compound, it can just be a little thing that might show up as, you know, like you mentioned, hey, I'm, this was the tipping point and now I am in a point where I really need to to intervene and figure out that management around stress. Are are financial planners good at managing their stress levels? I don't know. You tell me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think that they are likely no different maybe than the rest of us from a professional standpoint. I think one of the, um, you know, one of the commonalities, at least in financial planners and mental health practitioners, is that we are in client service industries. And, you know, our job is to serve right? Our, our clients. And, you know, that also looks like, you know, not just from offering strategic, you know, plans, but also hearing the stories. There is such an impact to, you know, hearing and taking on things, you know, from an, you know, verbally auditory, you know, standpoint that 
we don't really realize how that plays a role in you know our own bandwidth or our own stress. Um, I have learned over the years that there are certain topics or issues that I really cannot work with. So grieving couples over the loss of a child, that is not good for me. Um, I cannot take those clients um, on and work with them ethically. Uh, and so, you know, being aware of, you know, if you are an advisor and maybe you work with a lot of widows or you work with a lot of older couples who are, you know, maybe having end of life conversations and really moving into that kind of last and you know, stage of life, like there's a toll that that can take, you know, on you and your own stress and bandwidth. And so not discounting sometimes, you know, just the conversations that you have with clients and what that can really do for your overall, you know, mental well-being. Thank you for saying that, Ashley. And I think it's such an important point for advisors listening. It is okay to refer a client to someone that might be better suited. They are thousands of clients to work with. You will not be in shortage of clients. And actually, what I've experienced is the more you refer out, the more just come. And and then, you know, people that you really gain energy from and that you might be better suited to help come across your path and and you can actually live out your purpose. This this sounds like a very stressful profession, both of, both the therapy and the financial planning part. Why do people sign up for this? I don't know. It's 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 very rewarding work. Um, very rewarding work. But I think there was at least at my end um, some naiveness to what all it would entail. Um, you know, early on. And and I think actually this approach does make it easier than trying to fix everything, especially things that can't be fixing. The emotional intelligence means that you can actually show up in a way that's helpful. And in my mind, it's a lot less work than doing things that are not helpful. What does your training and work look like with financial planners? If someone maybe wants to sign up for some of the coaching work, what does that engagement typically look like from a duration and a cost and, and maybe content perspective? Yeah, so I offer coaching, just one-on-one coaching. And so that really gets to be predetermined by myself and the advisor. And so most often when I see our advisors that want to meet either monthly, um, you know, or every other month, um, you know, and coaching on, you know, specific aspects to their own, maybe emotional intelligence. Um, I also offer a case consultation too. So um, if there are just maybe specific cases that are troubling them that they really would like some guidance on, um, you know, I do offer just one-on-one like case consultation. Um, and then really what I really love is joining and aligning with firms um, in what I call a fractional way. So being able to be a team member with them and bringing a lot of the, um, as we've been talking about, the emotional intelligence aspect, um, but more specifically the financial psychology, financial therapy competencies, bringing those to firms and helping um, advisors to be able to incorporate them in the work that they do um, with their clients, whether it's through assessments or um, coaching, uh, what have you. Wonderful. Is that kind of, that's not working with the direct end client that would be working within the team and maybe the advisor and and helping them within the business? Yeah. Yeah. So those three that I talked about would be, um, you know, non-direct client roles that I like to work with advisors. Um, on. And so the packages around that are different. There's information on my website um, around that. But 
shoot me a good old-fashioned email and we can have a conversation. I like to say I have this little um, plaque. I think it was Brene Brown too, which makes me laugh, um, that everything is figureoutable. And so, um, you know, if there's an interest there and I'm able, you know, it falls within, I guess, the scope of my practice, then it's figureoutable. We can figure out a way. I want to share this story with you because I think you'll enjoy it. My two-year-old uh, was climbing over a little couch that she has and she was starting to tip over. And I said to her, her name's Remy, Remy, figure out. And now every time she does it on purpose, she says, Dada, figuring out, Dada, figuring out. So um, we are born to figure things out. And, you know, I would urge advisors to maybe cultivate that two-year-old within them to figure out this work that we're doing and to engage with, with you will definitely add your contact information on the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. Is there any parting wisdom um, or, or funny stories or things that you want to leave with the audience or, or anything that comes to mind? Um, I don't know of anything, at least wisdom-wise, um, that I would say. Uh, maybe just an offering of validation that I believe that all of you out there are doing the best work that you can. Um, and so taking time to just appreciate, you know, yourselves and, and how hard you work for your clients. Um, I hope that maybe uh, you do that. If if you don't, then know that I see you. Um, even if we don't know um, each other, I see the work that you're doing and it is appreciated, uh, at least in the clients that I meet with that tell me, you know, how impactful the work that advisors um, are doing in their lives. Thank you, Ashley. It's always lovely to hear that. And I can, can definitely echo that. Bye bye.